This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. And welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. The recent suit by New York City against pharma giant Purdue Pharma shows that cities are blaming the drug manufacturers for much of the problems surrounding the opioid crisis. The suit says that Big Pharma has deceived the public on the marketing of these products and hooked many consumers on the painkillers, all the while knowing the addictive nature of drugs like OxyContin. To discuss this further, we are joined uh, by two of the gentlemen that are involved in a recent paper that says the reformulation of OxyContin has been one of the main contributing factors to the opioid epidemic. Joining us uh, from the University of Notre Dame, Bill Evans, who is department chair and professor of economics at the school. And also joining us in just a second will be Ethan Lieber, who's an associate, excuse me, an assistant professor in economics at Notre Dame. Bill, great to have you with us. And Ethan is with us as well. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, Bill, let's start here. I guess tell us the, the cause and effect reasoning behind the paper in the first place. Well, um, I, I think you want to think about the opioid crisis as having maybe three different stages. Um, the first stage is this massive run-up in deaths from opioids, um, and these are um, prescription drugs that are typically used to treat uh, chronic and acute pain um, and include name-brand products like uh, OxyContin. Um, then, uh, starting in around 2010, there's this massive run-up in, in heroin deaths. Um, and then in more recent years, uh, fentanyl has been added to the mix and uh, causing a lot of uh, um, mortality as a result. And what we're really taking a look at is this movement from opioids to heroin. Uh, for a large time period, opioid deaths were going up. Um, and then all of a sudden in 2010, there was an abrupt change in the, the time path of it. And at that time, there was a massive increase in heroin deaths. Uh, now, uh, OxyContin is a, an extended-release drug that um, has very high milligram content, and it was very popular for people to crush it so they could snort it or liquefy it and inject it and get the whole milligram content. In 2010, they turned it into a, uh, an abuse deterrent formulation where it made it very difficult to do that. Um, so it made it unattractive to be used as a um, recreational drug. Um, now, people search for alternatives when the quality of their product declines, and the most readily available, cheapest alternative at a time was heroin. The country's awash in heroin, yeah. um, and uh, there was just this massive shift from Oxycontin to heroin. So heroin. I'm sorry, yeah. finish up. Go ahead. No, no. So, I mean, heroin is just much more, um, much deadlier because you, know, you don't have the um, uh, control in terms of what the milligram dosage is. You don't know what's actually in the product. Um, so as a result, uh, there's been almost – if you take a look at uh, – 
ox, uh, opioid or heroin deaths, there's been actually no change in the trend over time. Um, so it looks like there's been some success on opioids, but really uh, what it's done is just move people to heroin. So, Ethan, tell us about this reformulation of OxyContin, which I guess occurred back in 2010, and and, and the impact that it had, apparently. Yeah, so um, as Bill was saying, uh, users were crushing the pill and sorting or injecting it. And so essentially what they've done is they used this technology, which made it much, much more difficult to get all of the milligram content once you've crushed it. It basically turned it into a much more gummy substance, right? They're actually, if you go look at chat boards online, you see people talking about how it's, it's like trying to snort a gummy bear or something like that. Right? So much okay. less enjoyable than in the past, apparently. Uh, and so essentially, once you make it harder to abuse the drug, you know, essentially you've raised the price on this thing, and so people are going to try to find something else to use. And oftentimes, that just ended up being heroin, like Bill was saying. Were people still trying to uh, to uh, ingest this, snort it, even when it was a, a quote unquote gummy substance, or were were they Bill trying to were they truly moving away onto heroin? Well, they're um, they've done surveys of people that entered. Um, drug treatment programs after the reformulation. And a reasonable number of the people, I think it may have been like a quarter to a third, said that they found a way around the reformulation so they could uh, still get the whole milligram content at once. Uh, so either it was probably liquefying the drug or something. Um, so there did seem to be some people that were able to um, get around the reformulation. There was some movement to other types of um, uh, pharmaceuticals uh, that you could abuse. Uh, I think Opana was one that seemed to have a big increase in uh, usage right after the reformulation. But um, there is a, a, was a noticeable drop in actually the number of people that were using, well, actually, I shouldn't say drop. There was a steady increase in the number of people that were abusing opioids in national surveys. And in 2010, that flattened out. And so the increase that we were seeing since 1999 essentially stopped once the reformulation occurred. But there was an increase in heroin users. And, and th there is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Ethan, th this uh, abuse deterrent, which I guess they put on OxyContin back in 2010. From what I read through uh, your paper, uh, this is something that is still uh, being used by some products and, I guess, products in development as well, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, oxymorphone, the chemical behind Opana, they had uh, a version where they introduced this abuse deterrent formulation. And for a while, uh, there was a big switch from oxycodone, oxycontin to oxymorphone. And then once they did their reformulation, it looked, you see a drop off there as well. Uh, but it's been generally a strategy that the FDA and a number of other people have been pushing as, you know, this is potentially one way we can sort of avert the opioid crisis or at least rein it in to some degree. And I think sort of the big message in our work was, well, you know, maybe that's not going to work out as well as we would hope. So I, I guess, Bill, the question I have is that uh, if, if you if if this switch was made by Purdue Pharma and they made the shift and people kind of moved away from using OxyContin as the as the vehicle and they moved on to heroin. The, the implications for Purdue Pharma, obviously, they're taking a lot of heat right now, but but their responsibility in this process is what in your mind? Well, um, 
It's a good question. Uh, they, I, I, I don't know sort of what pressure they were under from the FDA to uh, generate an abuse deterrent formulation. Um, right. It is certainly the FDA's uh, goal right now. Um, there's um, about 120 some drugs that are in some stage of development right now that uh, for an abuse deterrent formulation, exactly the same way that Opana and um, uh, OxyContin were uh, reformulated. So the FDA is really trying to encourage uh, firms to do this. Um, you know, was this a foreseeable outcome as a result of it? Uh, that's that's a good question. Um, and uh, and but I, what our results seem to suggest is that what really made the big difference here was the availability of heroin. So yeah. Uh, there's been a massive increase in the amount of heroin in, into the country. It's, the supply system for the drug has changed dramatically over the past 40 years. Um, and now there's a, uh, a tremendous amount of Mexican heroin in the country that we never used to have. And it's concentrated in certain areas. The shift in mortality that occurred was much more dramatic in areas that had much greater access to heroin uh, than others. And so in, in terms of mortality uh, in areas that didn't have as much access to heroin, the reformulation seemed to um, have its intended effect in that it decreased the number of deaths. It's really the problem was when you have a readily available alternative out there yeah. that the reformulation didn't work. Um, and so it, it, it was the reformulation in combination with the fact that there was this readily available alternative. And, and given how easy it is to purchase heroin, the more we encourage these opioids um, uh, to generate these abuse deterrent formulations, it, it, it's, it's not clear that this is going to do much to mortality from the opioid problem because uh, heroin is just such a deadly drug. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. We are joined by uh, Bill Evans and Ethan Lieber, who are uh, with uh, Notre Dame U uh, University of Notre Dame. Uh, Bill is the department chair and professor of economics. Ethan, assistant professor in economics there, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send me a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Two things, Ethan, that I want to bring up. Uh, one is the fact that, and you have a statistic in the paper that I guess in 2014 uh, that there were some 4.3 million people that were using pain medicines recreationally. To me, that is a, a staggering number to begin with. I agree. Um, this is just this comes straight out of the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, and it's just people responding that you ask them a question, have you used pain medication recreationally within the last 30 days? And about if you, you know, extrapolate to the entire population, it's about 4 million people. If you think about people's decisions on whether they want to answer truthfully on this type of question, you might imagine that number is actually even too low, right? If a lot of people think, well, I don't want to admit that I've been using these drugs in a way they're not intended, then you mark no instead of yes. And so the people who say yes is an understatement of the true number in the population, right? That's about 1% of the U.S. population saying they're using these drugs. The other thing I wanted to ask is the fact that obviously there is a concern of what uh, companies like Purdue Pharma knew about these drugs 
even before 2010, correct, in, in terms of the yeah. potential addictive nature of these drugs? Right. It's, uh, I haven't been privy to all their internal documents, but at least uh, there have been a number of investigative reports that suggest Purdue was relatively aware that people were having problems. They weren't lasting the entire 12 hours they were supposed to last between dosing and that there was this addictive problem. Uh, they ended up paying a huge fine. I believe it was 2006 was the year. They paid some $600 million mm-hmm. for deliberately misleading uh, prescribers and other individuals about the addictive risks of OxyContin. And one thing that was actually kind of striking about this is usually with companies when they pay out these fines, you know, they plead not guilty. But Purdue actually capitulated and said, yes, we plead guilty to this. Bill? Well, I mean, back uh, in the early stages of um, the marketing for OxyContin, uh, the Purdue sales force was um, trained to tell doctors that there are these – that the evidence suggests that when properly administered, uh, opioids have a very low probability of turning into an addiction uh, for patients. Now, the interesting thing about that was the evidence for this is of people who were taking opioids primarily for uh, acute pain, uh, people that are coming out of surgery, people that are dying of cancer. Um, And what the marketing for the drug was was for chronic pain, people who have uh, chronic problems with their hips or joints um, or back pain and, you know, muscular skeletal issues. And so in in our statistics classes, we tell people that there are in-sample and out-of-sample predictions, and the evidence that they were giving doctors about there's a less than 1% chance people are going to get addicted was for the population they weren't trying to sell it to. Um, They're trying to move the population from the cancer patients and the post-surgery patients to the people with chronic illnesses. We had very little experience with that. And as a result, we're kind of seeing the the uh, the result of that prescribing practice now. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number if you'd like to join in. Let's go to the phones. Kevin is in Atlanta. Kevin, go ahead. Thank you. Joint Commission classified pain as the fifth vital sign, and CMS also tied uh, hospitals' reimbursement to patient satisfaction, and that lot a lot of that patient satisfaction revolved around pain relief. Can you discuss how those two actions contributed to the opioid crisis? Um, so I, I think that the CMS actions might not have done all that much. We've taken a look at this a little bit. Um, we uh, I, This isn't in our paper, but we've had some background research on this. If you take a look at people that are exiting hospitals um, uh, for particular procedures, and particular diagnosis and ask uh, within, say, a month, did they end up having an opioid prescription? That didn't seem to change all that much before and after the CMS started surveying patients, um, asking them about, uh, did the hospital control your pain? Um, So I'm not sure that that was part of the problem. I do think, I think a lot of the problem right now uh, was generated by prescribing practices of doctors yep. and their belief that uh, in a properly controlled environment they wouldn't get addicted. And so it, 
we it, it was the case that we were sort of under treating pain, um, and then this new product comes along and. There's some evidence that suggests very few people who are using it for acute pain get to get addicted. And so I think it's a confluence of events. Now, are, are those two uh, events, the hospitals moving to serving about pain and the uh, pain being the fifth vital sign, are they kind of the triggers? I'm not so sure. I, it might be just coincidental, but it's, it's, it's a confluence of events that happen at the same time. Kevin, thanks very much for the call. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in. We're talking with Bill Evans and Ethan Lieber of the University of Notre Dame about their reporting uh, revolving the, uh, involving the reformulation of OxyContin uh, and its impact uh, on the opioid epidemic. 844-942-7866 is the number to join in. So, Bill, then in terms of this reformulation, is there something in your mind that, that – companies like Purdue should have looked at uh, back in, in 2010? And again, as you alluded to, the relationship and what was going back and forth with the FDA is a factor in this as well. Yeah, so um, I, I the, we got this idea from the paper by actually talking to someone that uh, ran a um, uh, an opioid treatment clinic in Ohio, which is kind of ground zero for the opioid slash heroin crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in he seems to think it was obvious in hindsight. It may not have been just because the movement from uh, um, crushing pills to injecting heroin is a pretty big step. Um, so uh, it might not have has been so obvious, but it, it, to some people we've talked to in the treatment area it it didn't seem like it did seem like a logical step that was going to happen um so uh on the people on the ground seemed to thought that this was uh this was going to happen when they reformulated the drug so ethan one of the things that bill just mentioned i get your opinion on it as well is uh, obviously one of the factors that has contributed to uh, the opiate epidemic has been the run of uh illegal heroin coming in from mexico uh, in in the last few years, and, and obviously that is uh, maybe as big, if not bigger, a problem right now. I think as as the oxycontin issue. Right. So uh, if we look at the number of deaths in recent years, there are about eleven thousand heroin deaths and roughly twenty thousand opioid deaths. So in terms of magnitudes, there are still more okay. deaths with opioids in them. It's just that heroin has been growing. Uh, they've basically quadrupled in roughly a five-year time between 2010 and 2015. Um, and the the increase in the supply from Mexico, you know, there's a little bit of a sense in which, well, okay, maybe it's sort of a perfectly competitive market in heroin, right? There's this old idea uh, in drug supply about, it's like called the balloon theory. When you push down supply from one place, some other place pops up to just put it right back out there, right? In some sense, if people are willing to pay a a lot of money for heroin, someone's going to provide it for them. Um, Now, how much we can... So what that sort of suggests then is, even though Mexico has taken off as a heroin supplier, it's not obvious that maybe kind of what we're thinking here is, oh, maybe we should clamp down on the Mexican supply of heroin, right? That's maybe one logical response here. But it's not clear that in the long run, that's really going to end up doing much 
on the supply side, given what we've seen in the past. Let me ask you both, and Ethan, I'll start with you. It, with obviously the news of, of New York City and, and what they are doing uh, with their suit, I, it, to a degree, I'm not surprised that, that cities are looking for uh, for entities that are, are responsible in portion of this. Does it surprise you that, that cities and states are, are, are really starting to fight back through the courts to, to look at this? No, it's, I mean, the bottom line is it's costing a lot of money, right? Whether that is uh, prescriptions from Medicaid, which are, you know, partially paid for by the state, or whether it is uh, firemen, EMS workers who are administering Narcan to people who have had overdoses, it's becoming a really, really big expense. And so, you know, it's sort of a natural step for them to then say, okay, once this gun big enough, who do we, can we get someone else to help us pay for this? Because, you know, apportioning blame then allows you to go after them with some legitimacy. And there have been, so Purdue has had, uh, so New York is a recent one, but there have been many, many lawsuits by states and various jurisdictions trying to recoup costs uh, related to the opioid epidemic. Bill? I think the the best analogy is obviously the um, cases that state governments brought against the tobacco companies back in the uh, late 1990s. Um, there, they were um, trying to recover costs in uh, the Medicaid program for the uh, health effects from smoking. Uh, now, what made those cases work um, was the treasure trove of data that was put together um, of internal tobacco company documents about what they knew. Um, and it, it, what's going to be necessary to make these successful cases going forward is probably the same type of internal information. Um, so all that information was digitized. It was up on a mm-hmm. web page. It was easy for lawyers um, to, to, to search. And as a result, all 50 states uh, soon joined uh, what was happening in Mississippi and Minnesota when those cases were originally filed. Um, and so if... Uh, um, if the same type of information is available, then these cases are certainly going to proliferate. Uh, let me ask you this. At, at the end of the paper, you talk about doing uh, some a sort of cost analysis in the future uh, on the impact of, of heroin deaths, including a lot of these factors. Is that the next step in the research for, for you folks? Well, the, 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 I think the next step for us is kind of what is trying to separate the reason for uh, the opioid crisis. There's a a school of thought that suggests that um, since the deaths are so heavily concentrated in geographic areas that have uh, had the manufacturing sector decimated, in demographic groups like low-skill white males, um, that this is really an economic phenomena. and but I, I'm, I'm not sure that the, how good the evidence is on that right now. And so I think the next thing that we're looking at is trying to separate um, why exactly there is this uh, opioid crisis. Is it the case that people were turning to opioids because um, you know their wages have fallen, their job prospects are poor, everybody's left their town. Right. There's a tremendous amount of divorce. There's a lot of parents aren't living with kids. Um, you know, so is there this culture of despair that is leading to drug addiction, um, or is it just that these people are the most at risk 
because they have the most health problems and the most likely to get a prescription for Oxycontin and is it all prescribing practices. Sort of separating those two things um, I think is a really important economic issue. And, and one of the, one of our listeners uh, tweeted in a comment that I, I'll, I'll post to you as well, Bill, is uh, he mentions uh, about states with legalized marijuana right now seeing uh, reduced numbers of opioid deaths. So there's a, there's potentially uh, you know another ingredient to this. Yeah, they, um, uh, you know, we have very little between ibuprofen and Oxycontin. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And it seems that marijuana is the middle ground for a lot of people, especially people with some um, chronic issues. And so I, it, that, that's a, a really interesting area. There's been some research on this already um, that suggests that states that have moved to uh, more liberal medical marijuana laws um, have seen less of a problem associated with opioids. Um, uh, so I, 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 that's definitely an interesting yeah. uh, area for research. Great having you both with us today. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Ethan. All the best. Hey, thanks, thanks so much. much. Thank Appreciate you both. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.